What the hell is a temporary fandom? If you're a regular listener, you might have your own ideas by now, but I think it's something like this. For the time it takes to listen to an artist's entire discography, we try to get inside the heads of a bona fide devotee, to see if we can steal a little bit of the pleasure they're experiencing. Of course, we tend to choose artists we're already a little partial to ourselves, and today is no exception, at least not for me. Ewan may say otherwise. Anyway, if that sounds like a thing you might enjoy, then please do subscribe to the podcast, like us on Instagram, join our cult on Facebook. We're called Temporary Fandoms, you'll find us. And if you want to listen to the Spotify playlists of our shows, where we cut the discussions together with the tunes we're talking about, you can find them all on Beat Rehab. That's beat.rehab slash tempfans. Today we're going to embark on the career of one of those bands other artists like to name-check, but whose albums you may never have heard. If that's the case, I think you'll find this a fascinating journey, upon which you'll hear their influences upon countless other acts, many of whom did not emerge until decades later. Join me, Ewan, Aaron T. White and Christopher Whitby as we listen to the German cosmic musicians Can. Hello, uh, welcome to episode 11 of Temporary Fandoms. Um, I've actually got the count of the podcast right for the first time. Um, if you are still with us after the first 10, you'll have been listening to uh, people talking about and digesting ESG, the Pogues, uh, the Mercury Prize nominations, the Butthole Surfers, David Bowie, David Bowie, David Bowie, and uh, Yola Tango times two. Um, with me as always is Nick. Hello, Nick. Hello. And Nick is going to probably talk more than in the last Yoda Tango one, where he sort of disappeared for about 45 minutes and then came back towards the end. But we did have two guests who were very loquacious and talked a lot because uh, they were very enthusiastic. So go and find that. It was Jeffrey Lewis and Jesse Jarnow. And it was a really good pod. Um, rejoining us uh, from, I believe, the last time was the Butthole Surfers pod, we have Aaron. Hey, Aaron. Hello there. Uh, how are you? You've got, you've got a lovely looking new microphone, so uh, how are you doing? Well, I'm doing well. Um, I'm currently uh, COVID unemployed, but you know, I'm doing this unpaid podcast work, so... Uh, <laughs> but you're in Norway, right? So you get all that free oil money, like just, yeah, just yeah, posted just, through your letterbox. Yeah, they just... Well, <laughs> actually, I'm, I am actually getting money from the Norwegian government, so I, I can't complain too much. <laughs> And who are we doing today? Because this this one is yours. You're be, you're going to be curating this one. And who have we got? Uh, we are doing the uh, very very semi famous uh, German rock band Can. Um, they're one of the progenitors of the uh, kraut rock scene of the early seventies and late sixties in Germany. Okay, cool. No, I say cool. I mean, there seems to be some amazing symmetry. Last time you were on, uh, we had just got to. After the first few episodes, about 60, 70 listeners, and then suddenly we went obscure with butthole surfers, and we went for something not popular that was difficult for non-fans to get into. After the last few episodes, where we're hitting, getting up to about 190 for an episode, we full, full again, the semi-famous, never heard of them, can, um, who, who we'll be going through over the next two episodes. And joining us, um, who was with us the last time on the Mercury doing... What did you do, Chris? 
Uh, mine was Dua Lipa. That was it. <laughs> Rejoining us is Chris Whitby, who, as you heard there, was doing Dua Lipa on the Mercury Prize uh, run-through. And why are you here on the Can podcast, Chris? Um, two reasons. Uh, I am aware of semi-famous German kraut rock band Can, and Nick asked me, so maybe ask Nick why he brought me on here today. <laughs> I'm going to put well, it over to Nick. The thing is, the, the first six or seven people I asked all said, fuck off. Uh, yeah. That's the way life uh, goes, Nick. You just get the quality near the end. That's yeah. the, you, got, you have to work your way through. But I think that when we did Can last time, yeah, I think they're a band I really like. And I think this process would be interesting to kind of revisit some of the lesser known ones, which I think Nick was saying to me before that some of the later era ones. So yeah, be interesting. Awesome, thank you. I mean, just as a caveat, I also tried to tell Nick to fuck off, and I, I'm still here on this podcast after <laughs> having to listen to the entire discography for the first time in my life. Yeah, but you're going to make um, me do, sp- do Spoon for my troubles, aren't you? Yeah. Spoon, who were named, who named themselves after Can. Come on, catch up. Um, okay, too much rambling. There's a lot to get through. Um, as usual, um, you're either listening to us on your favorite pod player, uh, podcast app, or listen to the full app in Spotify. Remember, there's also a version of the podcast that is cut up into a playlist that contains selected tracks that you can listen to. Uh, works on Spotify Premium on mobile or any of the Spotify's on desktop. Or if you're not, just pause us, go off and listen. These are Spotify, Tidal, YouTube, the internet, whatever, and listen to the evolution of this band as we do. Um, everyone else has heard them before. This is this was my first time. Um, it's a two-parter. So what period are we going to cover in the first part? Um, we're going to be listening to their albums and some early recordings starting from when they began in 1967 until 1973 with their album Future Days. That's great. So we'll see you back after this. We were not thinking. When you make music together, you have to reach a common accident. Holger Chukai. Nobody really sounds like Can. But if you're familiar with their work, you'll begin to hear their stamp on everything that comes after. Can are up there with the Velvet Underground as one of those bands you're required to list as an influence. Even if you don't like them, it's best to pretend you do. And we're going to give you the tools you need to do just that. Can was officially formed in 1967 in Kern, Germany. But to tell their story, we have to go back. Our first stop is a year earlier, at a party in New York City, where we find a young Ermin Schmidt, a promising concert pianist and orchestra conductor. All the hip 1960s artists were there, which, I don't know, just yell a name at your phone, I won't negate you. But one that we can confirm is Terry Riley who asked Ehrman to play a simple repeating piano motif, a drone, over which Terry improvised with the saxophone. This was a revelation for young Ehrman. Composition wasn't something that happened on paper. It was capturing a moment. When he returned home, he set out to create something new. Music that was modern, but reflected their German history. Can, as children, grew up under the shadow of World War II. They saw their country torn in the two halves, raised by a generation so horribly led astray. They saw their cities leveled to the ground. They came of age within a culture that nearly eradicated another. 
It's not strange that German artists of the 60s wanted to turn their backs on what came before them. Ehrman had enlisted a former classmate of his under Karl Heinz Stockhausen, a young Holger Chukai, who was also looking to put a match to the past of classical music. Legend has it that when Holger knocked on Ehrman's door, he had with him a young, long-haired 18-year-old. That boy was Michael Caroli, who just turned down a place at law school. He brought with him a love of rock, and by playing them I Am the Walrus, he convinced Holger that one could be subversive within the context of rock and roll. The last of the core four was Yaki Liebesite, or Hair Love Time as nobody has ever called him. Yaki was looking to reject jazz music. He almost wasn't allowed in the group. He'd become famous as a wild drummer for the Manfred Schuff Band. And whatever the hell he was doing with them was not at all what Ehrman was looking for. But Yaki wasn't the drummer he was before. As legend has it, and let me warn you, the can story is filled with legends. A man came up to him after the show and said with great authority, as if he were a prophet, You have to play monotonous! That planted a seed, which resulted in Yaki becoming one of the world's most steady drummers. These men all left their previous careers behind and moved into a room of a castle outside of Kern, Schloss Nürvenich. They were allowed to live there rent-free for a year so they could help launch an art collective. They named themselves Inner Space. There was one piece missing, though. One day, a young American artist showed up at their recording studio by mistake. He was a visual artist looking for an art studio. Now, Malcolm Mooney wasn't a singer, but he was broke, homeless, and a draft dodger to boot. He had nowhere to go, so he gave singing a shot. They played him something they'd been working on, pressed record, and off he went, just spouting a barrage of words. According to legend, this is the very take they'd use for Father Cannot Yell, the opening track to Monster Movie. Malcolm was a rhythmic force, the thing that pushed inner space fully into rock. The man was a bit nuts, truth be told, but that gave the band the edge they needed. But Inner Space, it was too hippie-ish. So Yaki and Malcolm came up with a new name, something short, sweet, easy to remember, something affirming. The Can was born. We're starting our musical journey at a controversial place, delay 1968. Now most list their first album as 1969's Monster Movie, but Can had been religiously recording since 1967. Erwin Schmidt was supplementing the band's non-existent income by working as a conductor and scoring films. The band was hardly idle, though. They attacked the recording like they would any job, showing up every day at Schloss Neuvenich and improvising for up to 12 to 13 hours, documenting everything. They had only a two-track recorder and no sound mixing. The band had to stand at just the right distance from the mics. A simple step out of place would ruin everything. Afterwards, Holger would go through the tapes and cut out the best bits and put them together. There was no songwriting per se. They just played and documented and let Holger do his magic. Eventually, they compiled enough for their first album, Prepare to Meet Thy Penum. No label would invite. The most common complaint was that it wasn't commercial enough which makes me wonder how Can ever got a record deal. Can did eventually find somebody who would release their first album, themselves. This finally saw the light of day in 1981 when it was put out by their own label. Starting here reveals that even in their formative years they were interesting. 
So many of the elements people would come to love are already here. Butterflies, a pumping jam, driven by the intense rhythm section of... Well, everybody. The whole band is a rhythm section, especially Malcolm Mooney with his repeated mantras. You can hear a Velvet Underground influence, especially a 19th century man, even if it doesn't sound like the Velvet Underground. Can also show their early ability to produce dark mood pieces with Little Star of Bethlehem and The Thief, the latter of which Radiohead used to cover in concerts. And honestly, listening to it, you can hear how indebted Radiohead are to Can. Delay 1968 shows from the beginning that we're in for a wild ride. What is a song? Do you need a minimum number of chords? A chorus? A bridge? What about lyrics? Do nursery rhymes count? What about lines from a letter written by a jilted lover? Well, 1969's monster movie doesn't attempt to answer these questions. It just muddies the water. There's something so subversive about this. Can you imagine not being able to sell your first album due to lack of commercial viability? So you go back to the drawing board only to return with this? Now on paper, this reads like a disaster. Four tracks. All but one is longer than six minutes. The last, 20. Much of this is a band stuck in a one or two chord drone, while a man, teetering on the edge of insanity, barely sings, but just spurts off-key excerpts from his journal. Yet a label did buy this. Now we'll ignore that it was called Scheiss House, which translates to Shit House. Now these intros are meant to be objective, so the most I'll say about the quality of this album is that it's a masterpiece. The two bookending tracks are the most notable. The first, Father Cannot Yell, starts with a gently twittering keyboard, before the bass line to the Velvet Underground's European Sun kicks in. After a minute, they've dropped the Velvets, and have exploded into a jam that doesn't resemble anything that's come before. By four minutes we're trapped in a never-ending loop of insanity, as Malcolm just seems to be taunting you. Ha 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 The whole second side is dedicated to You Do Right, the first of Cannes' many great epics. Sure, a 20-minute jam composed of mostly one repeated chord may seem excessive, but that's because it is. But 20 minutes is downright economical considering it was edited down from a 12-hour jam. Now whether you love or hate it, you can't deny that it was... different. By the end of the first track, the band sounds like they've left every bit of themselves on the tape, with Malcolm hoarse and bordering on a breakdown. Monster Movie comes with a certain level of mystique. This explosion onto the German music scene by an exciting new band, laying down this towering achievement and having it be the only album they'd cut together. Part of what made Malcolm so exciting was that he always seemed on the verge, barely holding it together. And it worked. Up until it didn't. In another of the great legends surrounding Cannes, the band would play a show in the entryway of Schloss Norvenich. Mid-song, Malcolm got stuck in a loop watching people coming and going, walking upstairs, downstairs, upstairs, downstairs. Malcolm continued repeating this, even after the rest of the band had stopped playing, just standing there in the foyer, chanting upstairs, downstairs. Soon after, he took a plane back to the United States and had himself committed. But Can would move on. Can would find another singer and find themselves reaching new heights. 
1970, Can were lost. They were without their distinctive singer. Their first album had got them some success, but they were still playing small venues. Maybe their particular brand of avant-garde was too much for the world. They decided to reassess their sound. They welcomed in two singer-songwriters and lovers from LA, Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks, who would push them to unparalleled levels of success. Nah, I'm just kidding. They enlisted a hobo they found begging on the street, who's even weirder than Malcolm. And that is not a joke. Yes, here's another legend. Holger and Yaki were enjoying a beer at a Munich cafe before a show and saw a strange, stone, Japanese man making a, quote, incantation in the street. Holger told Jackie that that strange man would be their new singer. The two of them invited him to come sing with them at their sold-out show. He accepted, because he had nothing else to do that night. He asked them about a rehearsal beforehand. When they said there wasn't one, he said, Okay. Damo Suzuki started the show a bit timid, but by the end he was screaming and threatening the crowd with some strange martial arts. By the end, most had left. Apparently, actor David Niven was one of the only 30 people who'd stayed. He said later of the show, It was great, but I didn't know it was music. Damo was a perfect fit. And thus sparks one of the great musical debates. Though less well-known than the Gabriel versus Collins or the Roth versus Hagar, the Mooney versus Suzuki fights still flare up when music nerds get stoned enough. And there's no better way to compare the two than a 1970s soundtracks featuring both singers. As the title implies, it's a collection of film music. Can had a strange way of doing soundtracks. Only Ehrman would see the films, then he'd come back and describe the plot to the others. The rest of the band thought that the visuals would interfere with their creativity, and as the vast majority of the commissions they saw were pornography in the guise of art films, they may have had a point. Now, Soundtracks doesn't get the love of the preceding or succeeding albums, but I consider it one of their best. Included in this playlist are one of Mooney's last recorded tracks, and easily the most straightforward thing they'd ever record. She Brings the Rain. The other, Don't Turn the Light Off, Leave Me Alone, features Damo's first recorded vocals, and even more cowbell than we've heard thus far. This album contains another monster track, Mother Sky, which is 14 minutes of psychedelic bliss and stands as the hardest they'd ever rock. Yes, once again, our playlist does not contain the key track, I guess that means you'll have to listen to the whole album. Strap in, because we're about to enter Can's Holy Trinity, and we start with 1971's Tagomago, their big one, their double album. Yes, here it is, the dreaded double. Now that label comes burdened with the expectations of unbridled ambition, bloat, and an allergy to editing. And that totally applies here. But, it's also considered one of the most influential albums of all time. The first half of Tagomago sees all those sly and James Brown influences finally taking hold of the band. Somehow Can has morphed into a funk machine, but not in the way you'd expect. It sounds as if they decided to make funk music, but only had a description in a book. Does it work? Oh yeah. 
Yaki sounds like he woke up from an uneasy dream, transformed into a monstrous vermin, and used those extra arms to lay down some sick beats. If you just deleted the rest of the band from this album, I'd still listen to it. But really, everybody's on. And Damo, somehow, his word soup, a mix of Japanese, English, and random sounds carry with it a pop sensibility that helps us forget how far out even the catchiest tracks are. The highlight is indubitably Hallelujah, 18 minutes of a single drum beat repeated into infinity, while the rest of the band jams along in a two chord groove. It sounds like it should be boring, it's not. The description sounds like something that should have trimmed down, but it's perfect just the way it is. This album has been surrounded by all sorts of rumors. The title, Tagomago, is an island that is rumored to have connections to a Leicester Crowley. People say that this title is some ode to Satanism, that certain rituals were involved in its genesis. And when listening to the two epic sound collages that make up the bulk of the album's second half, it doesn't sound like such a crazy claim. There's just something sinister going on as if you found yourself in the middle of a dark rite. The first, Aum, was pieced together from snippets recorded between sessions, where the band was just messing around, unaware that Holger had tapes running. The other is Peking O, which used a lot of experimental techniques I don't understand, but thankfully, Holger clears it all up. He says he used a sine wave generator, and Irvin had a special microphone with a lot of echo, and Yaki Liebezite used a drum machine on Peking O, but to destroy the rhythm, not to create it. Yeah, uh, I hope you have some drugs available. Now, I'll be honest with you, I rarely listen to the second half of this album. The band wasn't even planning on releasing it, but Hildegard Schmidt, Ehrman's wife and future manager said, maybe somebody might be interested in this someday. United Artists was gaga about the first disc, but they were a bit reluctant about the second. But Hildegard was stubborn and said that both are essential. For those who are listening to the playlist, we've spared you the two crazy stuff. We have the opening track, Paper House, a psychedelic workout with a series of tempo changes, and Oh Yeah, featuring some tracks being recorded, then played backwards, then re-recorded forwards and, and, and backwards. Don't make me try to explain what they're doing. It's, it's just awesome. Something odd happened in 1972, Can had a top 10 hit. They were commissioned to do the music for the television miniseries Das Messer, so Can did their Can thing, recorded a bunch of jams and sent it in. The director hated it, complaining that it wasn't commercial, that it was just noise. Do you see a trend here? The producers loved it, however, and so they left it in. Now the program had a large viewership, but got slaughtered by the critics. One thing everybody seemed to agree on was that the music was the shit. So Can quickly released an excerpt as a single, Spoon, which shot up the charts. Suddenly, Can was rich and famous. Music magazines in Germany went crazy for them. Tagomago was even voted the second best album of the year in one magazine. The other big change around this time was that they moved out of Schloss Norwenich. They moved on up to the only place you can go from a castle, to an abandoned cinema in a small town with a long history of pagan worship, as one does. 
They bought 1,500 used mattresses and hung them on the wall, and hired Michael's girlfriend to paint all sorts of wild pictures on them. Michael liked to think that there was some sort of erotic spiritual energy that enveloped the mattresses, and thus it added some special quality to their music. They dubbed the studio Inner Space after the band's original name. The town was a bit wary of these long-haired weirdos who created strange sounds in the middle of the night, but after the success of Spoon, suddenly, they started being nice to the band, as one does. The band did their best to capitalize on the success of the Spoon single. They released Vitamin C with I'm So Green as a follow-up single. They found success on their international tour, but found themselves fighting over music in the studio, which is apparently nothing unique for them. Instead of working, Erman and Damo became obsessed with chess. When the deadline for the album approached, they'd only finished three tracks. The dirty-ass funk jam, Pinch, which seemed reminiscent of Miles Davis's work at the time. The other two, One More Night and Sing Swan Song, introduced something different, a more laid-back side to the band. To help buff the playtime, they added the singles from the album. But even with Spoon, Vitamin C, and I'm So Green, they were still a bit short of the full runtime. In a strange mix of chutzpah and insanity, they grabbed their instruments, hit record, and decided that whatever happened in the next 10 minutes would go on the album. And thus Soup was born. It starts normal, at least by can standards. Then around the halfway point, the band seems unable to hold up the veneer and just loses it in an explosion of avant-garde noise. This is a prime example of what the band labeled as their Godzilla moments. For an album with such a fractured genesis, it's oddly cohesive and stands as one of their most revered and easily their most iconic. The cover features a can of Aegean okra from Turkey. And if you're wondering, that is what Ege Bamyasi means. The album is a nice balance of accessible and experimental, and they totally bring the funk. Stephen Malcolmus of Pavement once said that he played this album every night before going to bed for multiple years. Oh, what dreams he must have had. In 1973, Can was tired. Within a year, they'd had a hit, done their first international tour, and put on a huge free concert in Kern, and had gotten wrapped up in a tough legal battle with their former manager. The activity was so much Michael collapsed and was rushed to the hospital. He'd suffered a stress-related stomach ulcer and was forced to recover. The second he was back, the band went on tour again, but it was clear they needed a vacation. And with their rising profile, they could finally afford it. The band reconvened in the summer of 73, re-energized and happy. And these raised spirits really shined through on the album they began, Future Days. The band calls this their summer record. It's comprised of four tracks and seems to fully explore this more chilled out side of the band. The one hinted at by Ega Bamyasi's Sing Swan Song in One More Night. Something about this album always felt like the sea. It's pulsing, relaxing, but occasionally violent. As the album plays, you can almost smell the salt in the air. This whole feel is reinforced by the start of the album, with its strange water and wind-like sounds. Much of the ambience of this was produced from recording Damo sitting on a beanbag chair. It opens into an almost strange take on Bossa Nova, but I don't know why I'd even try to give it a label. But you can already hear from this title track that Can is becoming ever more electronic, and never have they sounded so much like a unit. Can weaves through complex rhythms and changes in tempo seamlessly, 
and Damo floats above most of this, like some ethereal being. Much of this due to his vocals being recorded underwater. This album oozes confidence. The experimentation doesn't feel like playing around, but a focused attack. They even managed to lay down some impressive pop with the chugging motoric of Moonshake. The band has said it was inspired by the sounds of motorboats on the Rhine. The most significant track here is Bel Air, the 20-minute epic that comprises the whole of the second side. It opens with a lazy tranquility, almost feeling like a sunny day by the sea. Michael has even said that this first segment was his attempt to capture the Portuguese coastline in song. It travels in and out of the main theme, sometimes funky, sometimes spacey, sometimes just sounding like bird calls, all building to a glorious climax. For many, this is the best album they'd ever cut. And even if it may not be your favorite, there's no denying that this is Can at the height of their powers as a band. It seems like nothing would be able to stop them. But all good things come to an end. Hello, welcome back. Um, you have been listening to Aaron taking you through the first half of Can and their discography. Um, in the meantime, uh, we've realized that um, I am possibly the lone voice of dissent here and everybody's going to try and tell me why I'm wrong. Um, so, Aaron, we started not at the beginning, but at the beginning, right? We started with Delay. Yes. This came out in like the third third album, came out later, but was recorded earlier. Is that right? Yeah, well, Delay 1968, that was their first album or tracks that were going to be on their first album prepare to meet thy pnoom it's great great title whatever yeah you know it's starting their 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 nonsense uh titles to get started with um but then it sat in their archives until 1981 and why did they decide to inflict uh, release it on the world um it's because the a lot of the post-punk bands were starting to list them as influences and things like that and i i believe they just wanted to cash in oh, sorry my, my dog is whining i'm gonna let him know <laughs> what that was that's when i'd win <laughs> it, sh- it was hiding my wind so. <laughs> now i've got nothing to cover me um okay we're gonna carry on talking even though aaron it, has so, popped up. so after aaron has just mentioned post-punk is nick is this just another way to talk about the fall is that what you're oh, telling me? The only way, the only reason we're allowed to do Can is so you can talk about the fall again. Is that what's happening? It's pretty much where I first heard of Can. Uh, okay. Probably my, of my first exposure to Can would have been the track "I Am Damo Suzuki" on This Nation's who, Saving Grace. Who, who we have not met yet. We haven't met him yet. No, no. <laughs> who we haven't met yet. Um, so they released this old stuff um, later on, and the old stuff contained the original singer. Um, but who wasn't the singer at the time they released it? When they released it, they had broken up. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, this was the first thing I I, I, I listened to. Uh, actually, no, this was the second thing I listened to. I accidentally listened to the, the next album first and then went back to this. Um, and I have to say, this had been built up as a potentially excellent immersion slash episode. And I thought, oh, shit. You know those podcasts where there's a bunch of guys sitting around talking about bands that other people just don't get? Man, yeah, you just don't get it. Oh, God, this is that podcast, isn't it? <laughs> and I sat through, he's like, Malcolm Mooney? Mm-hmm. Why was he a lead singer? That's a legitimate question. 
Um, he wasn't a singer. They, um, he was basically he was at a party and he was talking to their keyboardist, Erman's wife, and she kept talking about this studio and she was talking about a recording studio, and he was basically he was unemployed, wandering around Europe. He he was trying to get away from the Vietnam draft, and he was a visual artist, and he thought that she was talking about a art studio and she was talking about a recording studio so she invited him yeah come down to our studio and he's like yeah great i can stay at the studio and make some art and he shows up and there's a rock band there and they're like yeah so you're auditioning to be our singer right and he's like what the hell is going on (laughs) excellent i love that Uh, and and this the sound on this album is not really indicative of if if anything can be indicative of what's to follow bits of it yeah. But, it, but there's, a, there's a lot more sort of straight rock in here. Um, was it 19th Century Man? I mean, if Mooney wasn't on it, I mean, it's still sub-nuggets type psychedelia. It's not any of the electronic, uh, yeah. relaxed beats and grooves that come later. I mean, it sounds very unfinished and probably, I don't know. I mean, if you're a completist, I imagine you love this. Nick, do you love this? Yeah, I do actually. I, I do love it, but I can kind of understand. Like, I mean, I think very few people probably start their can experience with this record, um, and probably most people discover can when they were with Damo Suzuki. Yep. And I think so. People coming to Malcolm Moody can via Damo Suzuki, they've already got a lot of goodwill towards the band, and therefore probably are a little more forgiving. I would say, but if you've never heard Can before and your first exposure to Can is with Malcolm Moody, I can see how that could be a barrier. I, I, I got a little bit of a of a parallel with was it Chuck Mosley, the first Faith No More singer, who I have a massive soft spot for. But a lot of people, when they go and they find We Care a Lot and Annie Song and whatnot after the after the sort of the big uh, oh my god, what's his name? Mike Patton. Patton. Mike Patton. I had Bill Paxton in my head. <laughs> that, <laughs> that would be a great thing. That, that's a band the, I'll listen to. <laughs> after the Bill Paxton Faith No More, going and finding <laughs> Chuck, Chuck Mosley would probably have that sort of jarring thing. Um, um, Chris. Yes. Is this your... There's going to be can puns, but I'll save them till later. Um, is this your kind of can? Uh, I'm going to be completely open. I think the first time I actually heard this one was this week. Because the one, for some reason, I'd never really got round to it. I don't really know why. I mean, my entry would, would be the next album, which we're coming to, but I liked it, yeah. I'd say I agree with you that it's a bit kind of um, embryonic, if you will. There's not, you know, there's kind of a little bit of what you would hear later, but I liked it, yeah. I can't really remember much standing out to me, which is maybe indicative of my overall feeling to it, but I would say that. Yeah, it's kind of the vibe that I would like from them. Yeah, and I, I think because my favourite can does involve Malcolm Mooney, then yeah, it's interesting. It's interesting to fill the gap in on this one. Okay, um, I'm guessing your favourite can might be the next one, which yeah. is oh god, my note I'm hastily scrolled up with notes. Then, um, uh, was there anything? So there's not really much to talk about in terms of like what's happening with the band at the time because the story really starts. Uh, with monster movies. So let's start the story proper. Uh, 1969, was it, Aaron? Yeah, 1969. And uh, Monster Movie was the first studio album came out to any acclaim? I mean, it wasn't wasn't ignored. I mean, I think it... 
I, I it wasn't a hit album by any means, but um, at this point, it, it was one of those things where people had to go back and discover it. Um, I think a lot of people, I think they started getting most of their international press around uh, Tagomago or Egebomyasi because they started they started making inroads into the UK, and then people went back and started finding the Mooney stuff. Um, but yeah, in certain circles, it was somewhat renowned, I guess. Okay, I mean, there was, I mean, I noticed when I first listened to it, I was like, okay, there's some nice guitar stuff and some pretty interesting drums, and there's a guy singing Mary Mary quite contrary at me as I walk around the supermarket, and I really can't wait to get this off my head. Um, I, I, okay, I'm going straight to you, Chris. You've already set your stall out and said this is your favorite can, which doesn't bode well for the next 10 albums after this one. <laughs> But <laughs> I'd say it's a, it's a level playing field rather than a depleting playing field. Let's put it that way. <laughs> I um yeah, it just I think that there's certain songs that you, this is to do the kind of classic thing. There's certain songs you hear at a certain time that kind of make you think, like feel differently about music and the way music can be done. Like for example, I remember hearing uh, "It's Gonna Rain" by Steve Wright for the first time. Silver Rocket by Sonic Youth is a big one for me. But You Do Right on this, the first time I heard it, just totally blew my mind. I remember just thinking, this could go on forever. I could listen to it as long as I wanted. And there's just something about the album that's totally... Even the cover, it's like it's been dropped from space, literally. Do you know what I mean? It's like there's so much going on. It's so kind of um, loose and just kind of... I don't know. I just love it. I, it's interesting you mentioned the nursery rhyme thing because... I love that track off this. However, there is a later nursery rhyme reference we'll come to later, which yeah, yeah. I think is an abomination. Episode but, two. Don't mention yeah. it now. Let's <laughs> yeah. keep things nice. Uh, but I think that uh, Monster, I just think it's amazing. I think everything about it. And like I say, there's just something about the freeness of it and the kind of, um, you can imagine yourself playing it and being in that band and that kind of, mm. I just love it. Yeah, I don't know. I can't really, it's, like I say, it's one of those kind of seminal songs for me not so a seminal album but that song there's just something about it okay okay uh and nick uh you have been banging on about can mm-hmm. um was it this can or or the later can um, i mean I've, I've also set my stall out as a demo suzuki man but i mean i still i still enjoy all this stuff and and, and i mean i guess you know you do right is the track from this album that is the really mind-blowing thing and it's it's 20 minutes long and the thing is, that's not going to be an unusual trait with with Ken albums, and obviously, yeah. if you're struggling with Ken, I can see how that would be a problem. But that's the thing. Like a lot of bands, like I would find, like having twenty minute songs a, a real difficult indulgence. But that's one of the things I find fascinating about Ken is that I do enjoy those twenty minute tracks. I, I love the fact that they just go on and on and kind of often with very repetitive riffs, and yet never seem same is not the word because obviously they are it is all about the repetition but they kind of go lots of different places within that sameness i'm going to see and i'm going to set I'm, my stall out i think long can is the best can i think i agree like i agree eight, eight minutes, longer the better no, i think short can's all right medium can you never get anywhere long can that's it I have, that's see, my I, that's I, my, <laughs> i'm the opposite here um i i like a band that has a good wig out a, you know that every so often they'll go off and they'll do a 10 minute track and they'll really go to town um but when i'm listening to what essentially sounds like uh we went and just decided to jam through this and put it all all on tape um 
if you go and do a gap year, <laughs> I don't want to know about your entire fucking gap year. You sound come like Frank Turner, you in. <laughs> come back and tell me the best bits. Don't are. give me a slideshow. No, this, is the, the gems, this is the entire gap year. No, the, gem, the gems went on for about 24 hours. <laughs> it's, the, it's the journey, not the destination, you in. Come on. No, let's set this it's the destination. <laughs> if I'm... If, if I'm going on holiday, it's not the fucking flight. <laughs> no, these songs they would they would they would take these themes and they would record them for days. They would come in, they record for twelve hours, go to bed, come back and say, "Oh, I really like that chord progression. Should we go and play on that again?" And then record another twelve hours, and then they'd cut up a day's worth of music into this twenty-minute track. Uh, I'm still I'm still not buying it, but there is plenty more time for us to discuss long songs over the rest of the pod so we <laughs> but we i are, think that we, we can't ignore uh the the excellence that is you do right as well um i i think that's like one of the first like there's that section in the middle to me that that might be one of the first like electronic da- electronic dance i don't want to use the wrong uh modifier to describe electronic music because i know electronic music people get angry and use the wrong one <laughs> but it's like the start of quote as we americans would say techno you know it kind of has that i i can't explain music but <laughs> <laughs> mate you're on the wrong podcast oh come on none of us can <laughs> no but there's 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 that one part where the, where the keys are coming in and it's like getting really twittery and and it's really electronic and it's and it's droney and it really just that to me that sounds like that's where electronic music started I know it's not true. I know there was other people <laughs> are doing that before, but to me, that's like that. To me, that really sounds like a groundbreaking little segment. It's only like two minutes of the song, but like blows me away. And there is definitely some stuff that I would admit uh, coming later that was groundbreaking and echoed bands that came much, much, much later. Um, so this is the Malcolm Mooney, and then next we've got Damo Suzuki, but not quite. We've got Mooney and Suzuki half appearing on the same not-quite album, Soundtracks. Now, Soundtracks, and I'm often wrong on these things, wasn't a real album, right? They it, they didn't consider it their second album. They even put on the liner notes, this is our second release, but our second album will be coming soon. So what is it? It's a compilation of film music. Mm-hmm. What, was it film music they actually did for films? Yeah, or? there's also for films. Okay. Mostly for pornographies in the guise of art films. <laughs> ah, so kind of a basically skin flick, soundtrack, experimental, not prettiness. Yeah, they were doing that same thing that Ennio Morricone and all them were doing as well. They were trying to get any money they could, and there was a thriving uh, film scene going on, and so they were making money by making wig-out scores to wig-out movies. But bear in mind, their first album was called Monster Movie, and they made these albums that were like big soundscapes. I think the, the cinematic dimension to Can is quite important. And so that's where soundtracks fits into this. And it's also worth mentioning that um, around this time in, in Germany, you had the new German cinema. So you've got directors like Werner Herzog, Fassbender, Wim Wenders, Volker Schlendorf, all coming through with really quite seminal movies. So there was, you know, alongside Krautrock, there was really interesting things happening in German cinema. That said, find, these soundtracks were for skin flicks, like Aaron says. I find that interesting as well, because the thing that I was thinking about this week, and after you mentioned Werner Herzog, is the other band this, who I listened to a lot of this year over the summer 
and I'm not going to pronounce it right, like your very wonderful pronunciation, Nick, but was um, like um, Popple View, Papal View, the other yeah, kind no, of Yeah, no, I don't know, Popple View, I, yeah, I, I don't I think, I think it might be Papal, I think. For, for the listener, I should say, I don't think we have any German speakers here, do we? <laughs> Wait, we're not saying Papal, at first I thought you were saying Pay-Per-View, like boxing. <laughs> Popple pop, pop View, Popple yeah. View. So it's interesting you mentioned the film one because obviously they were so embroiled in that, you know, they did all the Werner Herzog soundtracks. Yeah. And again, it's kind of, I just see them as a similar band where it's like they had some incredible highs and and they quoted the whole study then. But they had, um, you know, those moments, even when they're not good, they're still interesting. And again, it's just interesting. That, that I didn't realise how much can was tied up in the film thing as well. So they're another band who, similar sort of sound, similar time, obviously we're trying to do the similar sort of thing of kind of, doing all your fingers and all the different pies. So, no, it's interesting you mentioned that because I was thinking about that earlier on. So. so anyway, when I was listening to this for the first time after listening to Monster Movie, um, I quite liked Bits. And it was the first time I quite liked Bits um, or at least wasn't heart- semi-outraged by the idea that I was going to have to listen to 10 albums of it. Um, it was slightly different. Damo Suzuki doesn't seem to be Demo Suzuki yet, but there was a nice different voice coming in. Tracks were a little bit shorter for now. Um, and the album breezed along as a nice compilation of background music. Is it fair to call it background music? I mean, like, it porn stars would call it background music, right? <laughs> well, they've got other things to do. I mean, I don't know, because I, mean, I think this is the first uh, album where you get a real sense of a thing that we're definitely going to be coming back to in later albums, which is the the extent to which they influence the Manchester sound. Oh, I've got notes thing. on that for the next one. Right? But I think oh. on this one, like if you um, like, uh, don't turn the lights on. Um, that's got that kind of, and she brings the rain. They've, those tracks have both got that kind of uh, happy Monday shuffle to them. Uh, again, I you know struggle to describe exactly what it is, but there's something Wazzy. there. Remember, the, oh, the word is Wazzy. I think that may, that may be the first appearance of Wazzy on the podcast, even though it's yes. I think it might be the first time I've ever heard the word Wazzy. What, how would one use it in a sentence, Ewan? Oh, you Christ. Um, you just did. Yeah, um, new fast automatic daffodils had a very Wazzy sound. Oh, cool. Can one get Wazzy? Oh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. Um, very. A couple of bottles of Diamond White. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we're in. Anyway, you get Wazzy we're on somebody. Oh, I hope not. <laughs> if you're listening to soundtracks, you can. <laughs> but I think I don't want to annoy you and uh, more. But I would say my favourite track on this one is Mother Sky, though it is also 14 minutes long. But it's also Sky the best one amazing. on it. Yeah, that's my. Fa- that's another one that when I heard when it because again that just stood out to me more than anything. That's the one for me on this definitely. There is some long can coming later that I I actually half quite like. Um, I know, right? Um, at the moment, we're not quite there. Now, it's almost a perfect segue. We were talk- You mentioned uh, Manchester and Happy Mondays. Um, we're moving into next. Tago Mago, Tago Mago, Tago Mago. I've said Tago Mago, you- but I guess I don't know if it's you're the one who lives in. You're the one who lives in Spain, so why don't you tell us how it's pronounced? Because it's named after Spanish. Tago Mago. Yeah, okay. okay. I just assumed some German stuff, and then I realized this is Spanish. Second track, I believe. I was listening along. I was like... This is the Happy Mondays. This is the Happy Mondays. Exactly. I need to, and I was about five minutes into it. I thought, I need to have a look at this to, so I can remember the name of it. So, oh, hallelujah. Oh, it literally is the fucking Happy Mondays. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed it for about eight minutes. <laughs> and then six minutes later, 
I realize I'm still listening to the same song, except someone's cut and pasted some violins backwards towards the end. And I just remember thinking, that was a really good song. And I started to get a bit annoyed. And as the album progressed, and we're gonna, you'll, you'll have your chances. I know this is a classic that people hold up. Um, I, I walk my dog on the beach every morning, and it's lovely. It's a, and I listen to music or podcasts, and it's really nice. And this album was ruining it so much, I had to take my headphones off because I was getting so fucking angry. Oh, every Ewan. song. You and you and you and. Every song that seemed like it was going somewhere nice, they just went, ah, yeah, but we're gonna, we're just gonna fuck it up for no reason. Mainly, probably just to piss me off. Um, there, yes, there are influences in there. I heard early Primal Scream. I heard early Happy Mondays, um, and I heard a band that really needed to rein themselves in a little bit. And it, I, I've never. I didn't listen to a single other piece of music for two days after this album because I was so pissed off with the concept of music. That's a result. I've never been so enraged by one album. I, I don't. I didn't think anger. The only things that make me angry are that sort of crappy dance music you get when you go into sort of a, a shitty uh, beach bar and it's been written by a computer and it was there just to make money. That makes me angry. This made me furious, and I just, I just seethed with rage and it went on for fucking ever and it wouldn't leave me alone it's wonderful isn't it I, that's amazing i'm i'm, I'm proud of that yeah absolutely good work ken <laughs> um, so anyway i need to get my breath back so aaron this is held up as one of the top 100 or 200 albums of all time uh one of the best psychedelic psychedelic blah 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 albums um why is it amazing <laughs> I mean, I think you need to look at this album in two halves. You, you, you can't. You, it, it is one work, and they want to argue that it's one work. But even they weren't planning on releasing the second half of Insanity. They were just going to release the first half of the tight-ish, uh, funky, psychedelic stuff. And it was actually Ehrman's wife, uh, Hildegard, who's like, but this stuff's really cool. You should do it. People might like this. And they're like, oh, are you sure? Like, you need to release this. This is great. You're going to be you're going to be renowned for doing this. So that they got it into their head like, yeah, we're going to be great. And can so I, can I just ask, was it, it was Ehrman's wife who invited Malcolm Moody to the studio as well? Yeah, right? yeah. She, she's, she's got a lot to answer for. for most of their career. What did she um, have in for you in? Why did she dislike you in so much? Because <laughs> <laughs> she, she knew what was coming. Well, it's weird. Now you mentioned that the second side or the second part bit um, wasn't originally part of their their idea, their their their, their, their view or their, their dream or their their pick, whatever the word is for this album. Um, Ewan. album. <laughs> vision, vision. I got so annoyed I forgot words. Um, I think that album might actually work for me if I didn't have the end that was just making me angrier and angrier and not leaving me alone it was like some little kid prodding me as i walked down the street holding two bags of shopping and i couldn't put the bags down and tell him to go fuck off because his mum's next to him and he won't stop prodding me wow this this is this is i mean the the, the detail in this is just amazing (laughs) but i mean here's the thing you you could you tell the difference between damo suzuki and the child like was a child also going I mean, Aaron, I mean, you might not have the culture references. Uh, I'm not sure what made it stateside. Um, but no, Dama Suzuki in this was just Sean Ryder. I mean, <laughs> he really, I mean, the Hallelujah track was basically, he was a 
maybe Sean Ryder on downers rather than uppers, but yeah, it was that, was... that was the really exciting thing for me the first time I heard this album, though, was because, you know, I'd grown up with the uh, with those classic Manchester bands. But for me, that sound that they had came out of nowhere because I didn't know about these records. And it was probably, I don't know, like 10 or 15 years later before I ever even listened to the records that they were obviously listening to. And when you hear those records in that context, it's just extraordinary. You just think, wow, you suddenly you just see like basically Bez and Sean Ryder lying around, smacked off their tits in a flat in Manchester, listening to Take Omega and thinking, that's what we want to do. I think it's... No, I think it's interesting as well because going on to that, like I really like this album, but I definitely start to lose steam after Hallelujah. Like at that point, I feel like I've like That's you said. That's the second song. Well, I've got it. The fourth song. The fourth song. Yeah, oh, that, sorry, yeah. Sorry. Just, the album's thirty minutes by that point. I think that the, what I think is interesting is that in good uh, temporary fandoms uh, helping, a lot of their albums are around forty minutes. A lot of the Can albums are actually quite short. And actually, when they do 40 minutes, 45 minutes, it's all pure gold. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then you say there's something about when they – it's not that it's longer. It's just I think that's when they start creeping in. They work like a really good pop band who do weird things. Mm-hmm. And then when they let themselves go on for a bit longer, then that's when you start to maybe get the stuff that annoys you. Do you see what I mean? It's like that's when <laughs> it starts. When you said you – you Did mean, you just mean like people in general um, or, or you, me? I'm looking at you in the world of Zoom. <laughs> but I think, I think, though, it's worth mentioning here. I mean, um, assuming that somewhere out there, there are listeners uh, who, like we approach discographies, there are listeners who listen to all of our podcasts in order, maybe one or two, I don't know. But, but, but to, to follow that narrative, Ewan's reaction to the Berlin trilogy, right, and this record, it's the same thing. You've got you've got your first half, which is kind of like your carefully honed pop songs, and your second half, which is indulgent wank, which I love, <laughs> by the way. But it is. It totally is. Mental note: uh, Nick loves an indulgent wank. Anyway, I do. <laughs> I, I just want to. I just and, and also just to. I just want to make this clear that I don't think everyone listens to the the second half of this album very often i think most people listen to the first half all the time and the second half it's like oh it's sunday i've had some acid let's just listen to the second half of Mago Mago. that sounds like the most frightening thing i could possibly imagine um, which i've never done by the way but but i mean that's what, like i never listen to the second half of this or I so serious do. question does this album then if the second part is something that you reckon most people might, or a lot of people might not listen to, if it's if its whole, if, if its completeness isn't as good as the beginning, does it deserve its status as a classic album? If it's only a classic two thirds of an album or half an album, it's less groundbreaking without the second half. Mm, yeah. I mean, that's the thing. And, and they played this actually, they're an interesting little bit of trivia as they played. Um, because as we've mentioned before, there were lots of bands in Germany doing similar crazy ass music and they played this stuff for Karlheinz Stockhausen and they played like a bunch of the music that was being made at the time. And he said, this is all shit except for whatever the hell this crazy stuff. And they either played him Aum or Peking O, like the, one of the really crazy stuff on there. He's like, this is the only thing of any worth happening in Germany. What is this? And they're like, this is Can with, uh, with uh, these people. He's like, oh, those were my students. That must be why this is good. <laughs> God bless him. 
I am intrigued to think about that if any album has made me as angry as this album has made you. And I'm trying <laughs> to think of Prodigy. Yes. yes. Oh, Anything right. by oh. Prodigy makes me that angry. Wow. There was one Prodigy was album that made me a bit annoyed. I think, but I think going back, I think the reason I was so angry by the end of it is because if that second half wasn't there, I could have forgiven the bits that I found irksome. It was just the second half was just like, didn't like that, did you? Here's more of it and more of it and more of it the, and more of it. They're the worst band in the world. Again, I was thinking about this earlier. You know that kind of band where Stop you... there. Stop there. <laughs> you know, you, know you, you put a song on that you love and you say to someone, please listen to this song. It's amazing. The good bit's going to come. The good bit's going to come. The good bit's going to come. Like you can't imagine 21 minutes to say you do right. Just consciously thinking is this person going to like it 18 90 minutes they're not a band that you can sit someone down and say you're going to love this while i sit there listening to it with you just i mean they're a kind of a i think they're a band that take time i think that's one interesting is, thing about them and you do and right. I don't, I don't the problem mean, is but I isn't be, that the point of this podcast <laughs> yeah but I, that's the problem isn't it and i also no. don't mean i don't mean that you know there's awful people who are like just believe me if you listen to it enough you'll love it like the fall you know, like if you listen to another bit. <laughs> no, no. I mean, I, I agree with that because you see, I don't, I don't try and convince people they should I'm... or shouldn't like the fall. Like, I get that because um, you know, I think if you're a fall fan, you figure that out early. Yeah, people are either going to like it or they don't. Yeah, and if they don't like it, I'm not going to waste my time trying to tell you you should. I'd like you to. Yeah, and if you show an interest, I'll tell you which records I think you should listen to. But I'm not about to try and tell people they should like it. They totally until should. the until the three and a half hours where we talk about the fall. Drug, oh, but the point next is, week. you're going to listen to that because you're curious. And the same with this yeah. podcast, I would hope, because you know, can are the sort of band that you may not know much about, but you've heard people talk about. And if you're interested, you're probably interested because you know that they were influential on the bands that you like. And so, people, I would hope, who are going to listen to this, are going to listen to it in that spirit that they want to kind of get to know about a band that are otherwise maybe not not that accessible. I would say, so, yeah, and I think Sonic Youth is a comparative. They're a similar one. It's like everyone hears about them, listens to a bit, but you can't force it because it's just something that you say, you either like it or there's a way in or there's not. Do you know what I mean? If you're not going to go straight away, yeah. it's just not going to happen because you can't force yourself to go, I'm going to listen to 35 minutes of Diamond C or whatever it is. Do you see what I mean? Yeah. You're gonna go, it's either going to click with you or not. And I think Can are very much like that. There's something about them that it yeah. does work or it irk you, definitely. I can see why it would irk people. Yeah, I mean, I you've probably got to be in a receptive... Grow? Go on. I was just going to say, it's one thing you have to realize is I think for me, Can is a grower band. I think that if I had encountered Can during the streaming age, I would have never gotten into them. Um, oh. They're one of those bands where it's like you start out, and my first album was Ege Bamyasi, and like I listened to, you know, the, the first track, Pinch, and Vitamin C, and I'm So Green, like the really funky ones, and I didn't listen to the rest of it, because I'm like, ah, they're just kind of fapping about, there's nothing good about it. But I still like that enough that I bought Tag Omega and I bought soundtracks and I bought Monster Movie because that's what you did when you wanted to learn about a band. You bought everything. And I would only like a few songs off of each one. And then slowly I started liking more and more. Like, But Tag Omega, I liked this one from the very beginning um, in the first half. I mean, but I just remember I have so many memories of driving to this album. But it's now banned in my car because well, I, I air driving music? so much. <laughs> what are you talking about? Oh yeah, is super driving music. Hallelujah! I can't drive to it anymore because I'm always like, it's a real shame. The podcast is not visual. It's a real shame. It's not visual. Just so you know, I'm flailing my arms. You've got the video, yeah? Can we can we make a gif of that, Ewan? Oh, I'm sure we can. Thank you. 
Um, okay, so uh, putting us back in slightly, um, Egebem Yashi was your first album, and if it had been my first album, I think my opinion of Can might be slightly different. Um, please take this in the way that it's intended. When this album, when Egebem Yashi finished, I was really happy, not because it was over, but because I went, oh, they finished. That was good, and they haven't ruined it. It was like I listened to an album that I liked most of, um, and it ended in, in a reasonable amount of time. They didn't then go off onto some sort of demo sessions, 20-minute freak wank, and I was like, that's, that's a good album. I listened to that. It had, it had nice grooves, driving beats. Um, uh, Damo Suzuki was tying things together quite well. It took the Tagomago thing and got rid of all the bits that I really hated and just left in a couple of things I would have removed, but, you know, fine, they can stay there. I mean, they, they, I think they know what they're doing. Um, and, yeah, it was, a, it was a nice album. It was the best thing so far. Uh, it didn't outstay its welcome. And I was in a pretty good mood when this ended. I mean, yeah. comparing it to the – yeah, yeah. I mean, bear in mind, I hadn't listened to any music for several days. Because <laughs> Because of, because of Tiger Manga. Well, it's brave of you back. that the first album you listened to after your hiatus from music was another they cat gotta, album. It was the third. It was the third album. They gotta uh, put that I, on the cover. <laughs> after listening to Tago Mago, I never listen I never wanted to listen to anything else again. <laughs> but can I, I take it the wrong way? Can I ask you this? Um, sorry, sorry, Ewan. Would you say are you more of a Stone Roses man than a Happy Mondays man? When I was younger, I was more of a Happy Mondays man. But if but Happy Mondays seemed to have songs and Tago Mago didn't seem to have, didn't, I, I never knew where the, where the tracks were going. And even the sort of long dancey parts of Happy Monday stuff was about the nightclub, was about the, the drug experience and dancing and chasing that peak. And I think that the, the, the can stuff that influenced that didn't do it for me. I can do a long track if it's building to something, not if it just suddenly has four different random segments that I don't quite see how they go together. Um, and I think that by this album, the, by the next one, which name I always keep forgetting, uh, Eggy by Miyashi, um, I think that they were writing not tunes, but complete pieces that worked as one that didn't feel that they were embellishing it for no reason. Like they put the lovely little dessert on the table in MasterChef for the judges, and they didn't feel that they had to squirt some random sauce and uh, bee sting ice cream on the side. It was just a nice little perfect souffle. It was a, a rather longer answer than I was expecting, but the reason I asked... <laughs> It was because yeah. because where in Tagomago you hear the kind of uh, or Tagomago the the influence on Happy Mondays. I think on Ege Bamiase you have the template for the Stone Roses, which is the song "I'm So Green." Basically, that's every single Stone Roses song right there. Twenty years earlier, <laughs> maybe maybe fifteen. No. I don't know. <laughs> no, totally. I mean, I could hear a lot of um, not just Baggy in Manchester, but also even some of the post Britpop things that came out of. Uh, followed that I also could hear a lot of the sort of mid 90s electronica um, uh, even sort of some of the acid jazz things that came around sort of mid 90s the Kruder and Dorfmeister stuff mm -hmm. um, I heard a lot of that 
through these two albums. But this was the album that I went, this one, this is not, this is all right. This is a keeper. This is a well-written album that's probably written for the audience, for the listener, rather than themselves. You see, part of me is thinking you need to go back and listen to Tago Mago again. Because, uh, Never again. Because, because I think what <laughs> happened while you were listening to Ege Bamyasi is what you'd listened to two days ago and needed that time to process. It clicked in. No, no. Also, also this album was short songs, r- relatively, and um, ended quite quickly. <laughs> I think to continue his analogy, I think for you in Ontego Mago, they put bone marrow on the end of their meal when they served uh, it to the chefs and he didn't like it. And he's no going dessert. back. In a dessert. It was bone marrow in yeah. a dessert. <laughs> I think, and also the interesting about this is, isn't it again another temporary fandoms link? Because I think, I think Stephen Malkmus might have performed the whole thing live at some point. Is that Ege right? Bamiassi. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, wow. I'd love to see that. Wait a minute. I used, I to, because... used to listen to this every night before he went to yeah. for multiple years. I can see. I can hear. I could. I could see pavement being big into this, and and also later Malcolmus. Some of his more songy stuff could be very could echo this quite nicely. But again, this is the album where the 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 weak shallow me likes the pop songs. It's interesting as well if you look on tw- uh, not Twitter Wikipedia where bits of the songs have been used or you know the legacy of it. One of them is suppose the sings one song was used on Drunken Hot Girls by Kanye West on graduation as well. Yep. Didn't see that one, didn't see there that coming. That yeah. made me think Kanye was cool back in the day. Yeah, like, that is a he cool. He sampled Can, that guy is the coolest. Did he only sample Can because technically that's also part of his name? Could be. Maybe that's why it's part of his name. He's so egotistical. Like, he went, Can, yeah, West. Okay, that works. Yeah, supposedly for Record Store Day, two, Record Store Day 2013, he, Malkmus, that is going back to Malkmus, released a version of it, recorded the weekend festival in Cologne, Germany. So he kept it on brand as well. That's also clever. Uh, so there, there you go. If someone wants to go deep dive on Discogs, there you go. That's your uh, way to kind of link everything together. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like to hear that. Right. I'd like to hear that because this was, this, this and the next one were my, were my highlights. Um, Aaron. Yes. So was this a driving one? This is more of a driving one, right? This is a good driving album without any random freakouts that you could stick veer off the side of the road. I mean, I still prefer driving the Tag Omega, but yeah, it's a dry. I mean, it's it's nice. It's funky. I mean, this is I love funk music and this is a funky album. Um, I think one of the reasons why you might have liked it so much is that, um, as I said in the intro, they had a hit. They released some freak out music as a song and, and people bought it and they had a top 10 hit in Germany. So to quickly cash in on that, they recorded some some short poppy songs that they could release as singles and keep the momentum going. And they that weren't spoon, supposed to be way. on the album. Spoon. Spoon was a big hit in Germany. Top 10 hit. And um, so then they released Vitamin C and I'm So Green as another single. And they had another one called Turtles Have Short Legs, which is really catchy and fun. Um I mean, going, I'm going on what you just said, and also, I mean, if not the next set of episodes, at some point in the new year, we are going to be doing the band Spoon, who got their name from the track Spoon uh, by Can, who were big fans of Can, amongst other people. And I love Spoon, and this was the album I could see why Spoon were influenced by Can. There was a lot of stuff I could see. I'm just naming things I might find in a kitchen. I don't things think the I word find... can and spoon have ever been said so many times in one sentence. So I take my hat off to you on that one. <laughs> I mean, 
but this is yeah i can see why they where they got their influence from and it was quite interesting to see a band i love influence that i where i didn't expect it to be seen um and there will be a podcast about them at some point because by doing this i got nick to agree that i can do spoon i also find interesting how so this madchester link I've mm-hmm. never really noticed until recently, since I only mentioned it a few weeks ago, I noticed it. And again, this idea you're saying about the legacy of bands and the influence on them, because like Stone Roses are a band that totally perplexed me. Like I have no, like I've, I bought the first album, I listened to it, but I just never, ever, it just didn't do anything for me. So it's interesting that they are, that Can, who I love, has such an influence on them, but they have yeah. no, yeah, I don't know what it is about them. They're one of those bands that just, yeah, totally passed me by. But it's interesting I'll, to see that link. I went back. I went back to the Stone Rose a little later, and I think that uh, actually, if you think about the end of "I Am the Resurrection," yeah. like the full version where they they go off on one, you can see the influence of bands like this, the bands like Can, who who went, we're, we're going to go off on. one I mean, for that's eight the minutes. best Stone Roses song. Is it also the longest Stone Roses song? Yeah. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> so so this is continuation here. I tell you, but that is probably the best Stone Roses song. So maybe that's telling as well. I did say to my mum once, um, that's the song I want to play at my funeral, the full version, the really long version, with the with the guitar and the bass at the end. Don't stop it, don't stop it, keep it keep it going. Um Aaron, um this was your entry point. You went backwards. Yep. Um but you came into obviously you came into Cannes as they were fully formed. Did you go straight back to Tiger Maga or did you get move to any of the more recent albums from this? I mean, back in these days, it was very common for me to, if I said, oh, I want to check out this band, I would buy five albums within a month or two and do it really quickly. Even before I decided if I liked them, I just like bought them all. Um, But I was in a lot of online music groups, like Yahoo groups, talking about Pink Floyd primarily. And and, uh, this album was talked about a lot. I mean, Tego Mago kind of gets seen as their famous one, but I would say the Egeba Myasi um is the one that i would always see the most before i got into can because i just remember that cover that can of okra i mean it's so memorable so i just remember yeah that's the one to get and everyone talked about how you you need to hear this album you need to hear this album tag omega was always the the later one like that wasn't the first one that everyone said you could you should hear this is usually the way in for most people i would think and i think that's an important thing we haven't really talked about it but that run of albums with monster movie sort of soundtracks um Tego Mego and Egabemiasi the covers are amazing the whole package mm-hmm. is good Do you know what I mean those covers are really really because that was quite weird over the last few days re-listening to Tego Mego because the cover on Spotify it's a reissue is, isn't it it's the reissue it's the 40th yeah. anniversary so it's why the would you do that it's an iconic I know. cover so again, I like, like the reissue cover oh, it's a great cover it's a great cover but it's kind of, it was so weird because I associated the music with the original cover so much it was mm. weird continually seeing that they so I think, hated that cover the, the old one really how come they they called it vomit head. They didn't like it. <laughs> wow, because <laughs> it looks like a head that's vomiting. They call it, I can't I don't know my German, but they called it vomit head. I just think the package of those three there are just so yeah, they're just amazing. And it's also just the kind of they just all so different, but they feel have a similar sort of vibe. Like because obviously vitamin C. I think the first time I heard vitamin C might have actually been or first early time was in Inherent Vice, Thomas Pynchon film, the oh, Paul yeah. Thomas Anderson one. Oh, yeah. yeah. So again, you've got that kind of pinching Paul Thomas Anderson thing going on that they've already taken, which is that kind of semi, just surreal, not even surreal, I suppose, but like weird, slightly off center, which can always have, which is, it feels like, again, like Sonic Youth, it feels like a pop song. It feels quite straightforward, but there's just something slightly off center 
that makes it more interesting than a standard song. And the covers seem really part of that as well. Just okay. Like, may, may I digress for one moment? No. Ewan's reaction to Tag Omega is my reaction to reading Thomas Pynchon. I've tried <laughs> reading his books right. three or four <laughs> yeah. times, and every time I read one of his books, I get the exact same reaction that he has a Tag Omega. Like, this guy needs to fuck off! I'm like, <laughs> oh, fuck you, Thomas Pynchon! <laughs> Write a real sentence! Why are you writing stupid sentences? Oh, I'm still, I'm, I'm communicate! Still I'm still halfway through one of the sentences I started in Gravity Rainbow about three years ago. I keep getting trapped in a loop and I can't quite finish the paragraph. Um, but I totally get that. But now now you mention Inherent Vice, um, that makes sense to me because that's the Paul Thomas Anderson movie that I went, oh, God, this is annoying. And, <laughs> and then <laughs> that's when the cat... Anyway, when we started all of this and I started listening to the more rocky stuff at the beginning... Um, I, I didn't really know where it was going to go. I know that Nick had told me there was a sort of Manchester influence, and when that turned up, it's, I sort of was able to put it into place. When we got to um, Future Days, which is this real sort of chill-out album with a great, great o- couple of openers. Um, I've already mentioned sort of 90s Electronica, Crudo uh, and Dorfmeister, stuff like that. This was a great album. Um, the last one and this one were definitely my definitely my my two peak my, my my two highlights. Um, this was not where I expected them to go. Um, they seemed very restrained. They seemed to be making something complete with a plan that just worked. Uh, it didn't go off on so I, I kept half expecting something crazy to kick in and ruin my vibe, but it didn't really happen. Um, Nick, I mean, yes. this was future days is. They're one of their best two albums, right? Um, it's one of the best three albums. <laughs> I would include the one that made you really angry in there. But um, is that because it made me angry? <laughs> well, only more so now. I mean, it was already <laughs> in my top three can albums. Um, but uh, but no, Future Days is yeah, it's the chill out album. It's it's sort of something very blissed. Um, it, it sort of feels redolent of lying on a beach by a fire at night. There's a, there's a vibe to it. And it has my favorite Can song on it, which is Moonshake. I absolutely love Moonshake that. Moonshake is great. Which is oddly a very short Can song. I mean, that's the thing that frustrates me about it is that I could listen to Moonshake probably for 20 minutes, and yet it only goes on for about two and a half or three minutes. Um, but it's, and, and there's some weird percussive things going on in there, and Damo Suzuki's on perfect form, just doing his weird mellow thing. No one ever really knows what he's singing about, but it doesn't seem to matter. <laughs> it's just it's just a vibe, and it's great. And it's almost, I mean, I think when we were talking about the Berlin trilogy uh, on the Bowie episodes, uh, go back and listen to them if you haven't, um, I made a rather convoluted analogy about how low, were, what was it, low... There was there was the cocaine years, and then there was the come down from cocaine, uh-huh. and then and then Heroes was the taking a bunch of weed on the Sunday night to chase it, and then Lodger was going to the pub on the Monday trying to wash it all away. Um, the last three albums here do feel like a sort of going out, getting drunk, night going crazy, going to a club, going back to your mate's house, and then the next afternoon just putting on some chill out, chilled yeah. out. This is uh, an amazing album just to, just to kind of like lie on a bean bag and, and come around to. <laughs> bean bag? Oh, yeah. It's just, let's put on a lava lamp and listen to some can. An inflatable <laughs> Why chair. Not? Why not? <laughs> if I had an inflatable chair, I would definitely listen to my can in it. 
<laughs> um, Aaron, yes. um, where did this? I mean, where did this sit for you so far? Yeah, this is this is up there in the top. I mean, it's really hard for me to choose my favorite. I mean, I I I rank monster movie through future days as all like a perfect five album run. All of them, like like they're some of my favorite albums of all time. All of them, and I couldn't pick one. But I think this album is absolutely perfect. It's the only perfect album they've made even and if it's not why, my favorite and why do you think their their sound became maybe more honed i guess could be the word from say the earlier stuff is it because they didn't have someone saying it would be a good idea to add this to the second side a, a, a part of it is that they were comfortable um they were happy they were in really good mood because they'd all gone on a vaca- gone on a vacation because they finally had some money because they were before they were struggling scraping it together all the time and now they have some money. They went on holiday. They came back in just like a really relaxed, good mood. They've been playing together for years. They just really knew each other well. They just they're just confident. They just they know what they're doing. And they're firing in all cylinders. It just this is this is a band at the top of their powers. Thank God nothing can go wrong. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> See you again in episode two. <laughs> Um, so, um, before we sort of wrap up, um, Chris, um, Malcolm Mooney was, was your favorite part of Can. Long Can is your favorite Can. This is chilled out Electronica. Um, how's it's still long, but Electronica can be long if it's sort of chilled out stuff. I've got different rules for different things, man. It's fine. (laughs) Um, Chris, where does this sit for you? Uh, I like it. I think I'm still more inclined to veer towards the kind of really heavy beats, you know, that kind of wigging out type stuff. But, you know, you can't you can't go full blast all the time, can you? Do you know what I mean? Sometimes you need to, like Craig David, you've got to chill on Sunday. Do you know what I mean? So it's like <laughs> you need to have a bit of downtime, and that's where this fits in. And that's release tackle any- one Monday. If anyone else has, um, <laughs> if anyone else has linked Craig David to Can before, show him to me. <laughs> you know I mean? so, but I think it's also worth saying, though, obviously with um, Future Days, also the David Stubbs book, which obviously covers that period in history of uh, German music, which people are interested in. That's a great book as well um yeah it's called by david stubbs future days it's great as well i would say it's worth adding in it's obviously people who now are totally besotted with can all the long songs take omega their favorite album of all time now you know they're gonna gonna go for it okay well that seems like a perfectly good place to wrap up part one of can we've had this run they changed singers they seem to have got to their musical peak they have a lead singer who seems comfortable um they've made this uh, I started to like them. What could possibly go wrong? Um, join us for the next episode where we'll be looking at the second half of, of Cannes' um, slightly uneven discography. And we'll see, uh, thank you for joining me and us today, Aaron. Yes, thank you. Uh, thank you for having Chris, me. Thank, thank you. you and your beard for joining us on this one. <laughs> Thank you very much. The beard is also welcome. <laughs> and Nick, I'll see you next time. Yep, see ya. If we learnt one thing from this episode, is that if you're new to camp, walking your dog on the beach to the latter part of their indisputable classic, Tago Margo, will not leave you entirely predisposed to its charms. Still, 
The very thought of this scenario causes me much glee, so I'm not sure I'd want it any other way. Thanks to our curator, Aaron T. White, for your captivating album introductions, and to Christopher Whitby for helping us outnumber the slightly incredulous Ewan. And thanks to Ewan, nevertheless, because, even if he is immune to the charms of one of the greatest bands of all time, he still works very hard gluing these shows together. Thanks also to Jonathan Fisher for providing us with our own cosmic musical interludes. Join us again next time when we'll continue our Krautrock journey and find out if they can sustain the quality we've heard today. I'm Nick Hilditch, and you're losing, you're losing, you're losing, you're losing your vitamin C. <laughs>